last thing I want people to say right now in this era, especially of the pandemic, is that somehow I've lost my vigor. I've lost my creative drive. I've lost my passion and I'm just doing whatever I can to survive. No, you have every superpower you need inside and there's more that you can get your hands on. And by way of activating those superpowers and by way of holding on to an attitude of expectancy, you are going to see some incredible results. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. On today's show, we meet Donald Burlock Jr. Officially, Donald is a senior user experience designer with Amazon. But if you look at his resume or read his impossible to put down debut book, Superhuman by Design, you can see his contribution to the world has been much greater than any single job or title. Over the years, he's held creative leadership roles with some of the largest and most influential companies in the U.S., if not the world. Amazon, Facebook, Capital One, Dolby Laboratories. But while Donald himself would deny it, he's more than just a designer. He's a thought leader whose innovative approach to unlocking creativity has turned superhuman by design, which is part memoir, part manual, and part lifebook, into a must-read both in and out of Silicon Valley. But before we get to what Donald has become, let's hear how he got here. The fascinating life he led before it happened. Much of Donald's early life was shaped by being what many call a PK, a preacher's kid. He was born in Dallas, Texas, where his father was in seminary studying to be a pastor. His parents were both from Chicago and met at the University of Illinois. But shortly after they married, Donald says his father was called to preach. Like Donald, his father was an academic and selected the prestigious Dallas Theological Seminary to study. The Burlocks lived in Dallas for six years, and during that time had Donald and his three siblings. What was it like being a PK, as they would say, pastor's kid as a child? Yeah, you know, honestly, Donna, I didn't even understand I was a PK until I moved to Indianapolis. We moved to Indianapolis when I was seven, eight, or nine, somewhere around there. Up until then, 
my entire experience as a child in Dallas was just full of creative wonder. And a lot of that was due to my mom. My mom homeschooled us while we were in Texas. So I didn't go to public school until I was seven or eight, and we were in Indiana. And that entire time in Dallas was always experimenting with, you know, clay and going to museums and doing all these like really experimental creative things. And it wasn't until I was in Indianapolis and my dad was at a church that I started to understand the dynamic of being a PK. And a lot of people, it's funny you say PK because not everyone knows, you know, PK pastor's kid, but that's right. That is a thing. That is a thing, being a, a pastor's kid. Can you expand a little bit more on on being homeschooled? Yeah, I think the homeschool experience for me was, it was very, very foundational to not only the creative person that I am now, but it was also really foundational in terms of my experience just as a Black person, as a Black boy, because my mom, she had everything at her disposal to talk to me about any and everything. So Black history, the experience of Blackness across not only the U.S., but globally, tying it all the way back to African diaspora. She also had the time to introduce us to activities that would really enforce our imagination. It was a very formative stage, that those early years in Dallas. A lot of people don't know that, though. And how do you think that ultimately influenced the next level of young adulthood? It played into part of my personality as like a young kid, which was a bit more introverted. But I, I loved being around other kids. I loved, you know, seeing different kids who were into different things, mostly because I, I hadn't had that type of exposure, right, as a, as a homeschool kid. So once I got into public school, everything was fascinating. Hearing someone speak a different language, that was something I wasn't exposed to per se when I was being homeschooled or, or seeing the clothes, seeing the styles, you know, seeing kids that were into a sports team and having shoes that were from a sports player. And on one hand, there was a lot of fascination. I think on another hand, there was a little bit of fear, right? A little bit of self-consciousness because I wasn't styled a certain way. I, I didn't really have that type of independence that comes from, you know, forming your personality in the context of other people. What was your biggest fear? I think my biggest fear at the time was not being able to relate to other kids who had been exposed to a lot of other things, music or whatever was going on in the culture at that time. And that was pre-social media too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is the nineties. <laughs> this is definitely the nineties. Yeah. Pre-social media all the way. After high school, Donald moved to Flint, Michigan, where he attended Kettering University known at the time as the General Motor Institute of Technology. As a homeschool kid, his mother always encouraged a tactile educational experience, incorporating clay, paints, and models into her lessons. This turned him into an artistic-minded but mechanically inclined student, so he decided to major in mechanical engineering. The career track for most students at the GM Institute was to graduate and get a job somewhere in the automotive industry. The school offered an attractive co-op program that allowed students to work for various auto and auto-adjacent manufacturing companies. 
It was an enriching time for Donald, but the most important education he received was more cultural than technical. Growing up in the Midwest also meant that I would sometimes not be exposed to different cultures, different communities. And so I think as I progressed and by the time I got into undergrad, even though I was at a primarily white college, I still, for the first time, started spending time around a lot of people who were really different. And I think that was, it was really fundamental to opening my mind, especially being a PK, right? Like, you know, coming out of an upbringing that was uh, framed within the context of, a, of an evangelical ministry, of a, especially a Baptist church. I think initially there were days where I would I would kind of wonder like oh wow they they think like this or wow that why do you have those values and and so you know it was less of perhaps questioning who I was and it was more of I think expanding my my mind to understand where other people were coming from like other perspectives so when you're going through that process being homeschooled uh, PK kid new environment surrounding you know, in terms of your role models, were they changing or were you hanging on to the values and the role models in which you were brought up with? In a way, it was actually early on a bit of an interrogation of, okay, why do I believe that? Because, you know, just a quick kind of deviation here. I met a a friend early in my first year who was a Muslim and might sound strange to some folks, to other people, maybe not, depending on how you grew up. As a Christian, as someone who had come up in the church. That was my first time spending time with someone who subscribed, ascribed to the Muslim faith. And we had a three-hour debate, more or less. We're sitting down in the lunchroom and we're going back and forth. We're trying to understand each other. And it was mind-blowing for me in a good way. It was like, oh my God, I couldn't imagine that you know someone would have this type of perspective about this. And we ended up becoming really good friends, if for nothing else, because it was as if we were just unlocking things for each other. And so I think that was part of the experience of, of transitioning from an upbringing that was framed within the church, you know, framed within academics to being in an environment where, you know, I had to really integrate, is this something I, I really want to hold on to? Is this something I really believe? Is this something I really value? During college, Donald took a semester to study abroad in Germany, which became another eye-opening experience that he would call on later in his career. But at the time, they were just observations. He noticed what he calls the thoughtfulness behind everything he experienced as a consumer. He noticed what the chairs felt like when he sat on them, how the lights came on in the room. He toured auto manufacturing facilities and noticed the level of consideration they went into testing for what would ultimately be a tiny component of the finished product. It was such a contrast from what I've experienced up until that point in just growing up in the States where everything's disposable, everything's kind of so consumer-driven that it's forgettable. My experience there was, you know, certain things were long-lasting. The way that a shirt was made or a pair of shoes were made in Italy going to a shop and seeing that, being in Germany and touring the auto factories and seeing the level of consideration that went into the testing for a seat, hopping on a train and going to France and then being presented with a meal and just the way the cutlery would show up. 
like, you know, I would pay attention to all those things. And I would think, man, this is so thoughtful. It's so considerate. Just very little things, you know, just like the way that an armrest would fold. I'm like, wow, someone put some thought into that. I had never seen that. You know, it just, that thought had never occurred to me. You know, it was like everything in the States was, it's always convenience and, you know, everything's disposable and a bit forgettable. And to experience a place where there were things that had that longevity to them, I had never experienced that before. That That's amazing. So now you've had this global experience. What was the first job out of college? First job out of college was actually with a company in the Midwest called Delphi Electronics and Safety. And Delphi manufactured at that time mostly components or different types of American automakers. And so I started out there working as a mechanical engineer. And what types of things were you designing or engineering? Oh, a little bit of everything. But where I spent the most time was with the dash of the vehicle. I spent a lot of time with what a driver, a customer would interact with in the front of the vehicle. So buttons for your radio or your CD player. At that time, it's hard to believe, but nav screens, navigation screens were just becoming a thing. I mean, they had been introduced, but they were really taking off. And so the way the entire, what they call faceplate of a dash, I was responsible for the engineering. I was responsible for orientation of different things and materials and the manufacturing involved to, to bring those pieces to life. That's how I started. One of the things that stuck with me from that experience in Europe that I think translated really quickly into just my post-college years was this catchphrase of making the intangible tangible. So the whole concept of how do you create an experience, how do you create an ambience, if you focus on those things, what does it lead to in terms of how someone perceives what you've created for them? I don't know if I got any of that until I did that trip. I you know, I traveled and I got that global exposure of just walking into a museum or a store and just the entire experience changing for me. It was very palpable. And I think I brought a lot of that into the work I was doing both you know, at the job and then outside the job. I was painting outside of work. I was constantly generating something, doing art shows. It, it was always like taking something that I had in my head, a vision of whatever the environment was supposed to feel like, and then making that palpable, like making it very tangible. So people felt, you know, like they were getting a bit of it through like all of their senses, whether it was, you know, music, audio experience, or, or the texture of the invite or whatever it was. And that just played out through the first couple of years after undergrad, both at work and outside of work. It was an experience he had at Delphi that would change Donald's entire career track. Throughout college and even into his first years in the auto industry, Donald said he had no real understanding of what design was. Even his observations in Europe, as far as he was concerned, had nothing to do with design. To him, a design was something that someone produced. It wasn't something that someone actually did. He thought the only professionals who did design, as a verb, architects, or maybe fashion designers. He had still never heard of industrial design. He was unaware of anything called user experience. Those weren't even in his vocabulary. 
His aha moment came while visiting a GM factory where some of the parts he designed were being installed. I'll never forget it. You know how this is. It's one of these moments where someone pulls the curtain back and you're just like, this is what I'm supposed to do, right? This is truly how it started. I'm 24. I'm looking into a window and there are these people who are controlling a machine that is machining clay to create wheels. And the wall is just full of all of these amazing sketches and images of wheels, all these materials pinned up. And I thought to myself, what is this? Like, why am I not doing this? I do, I do engineering during the day and then I go home and I break out my acrylics or I break out my oil, I break out my canvases and I'm painting. And at the time I, I wasn't of the mind that you know, you can combine elements to create a career path. I was just like, I'm a late night artist. That's what I do. And I'm an engineer by day, right? That was my whole, the, the abattoir of like, you know, late night painting. And then I go in and I, I engineer stuff. What do you paint? At that time, I was painting people. I was really into portraits. I was into experimenting with different textures, different elements like taking animals like tigers and painting a tiger and then I'd paint like a face and I combine it. It was you know, or I would get like a, a photo of a painting from like the Renaissance or some other period. And then I would translate it from like sort of this European very white expression to like this multicultural, different ethnicity type of piece. Literally staging people in the same positions and sort of similar outfits, and then taking a film photo, like actually producing a, an image. I was into like all of this like sort of experimental stuff. And when I saw that studio, that changed it. I was like, I want to do this every day. <laughs> That's how it started. Yeah. Not long after that life-changing realization came another one. By 2007, Donald had already spent more than four years in the automotive industry, but while attending the engineering conference, he met a fellow engineer who worked for a company called Apple. That chance meeting would open Donald up to an even bigger world. So this is still Steve Jobs' Apple. This is still Johnny Ives' Apple. I'm, you know, a couple of generations in iPod person at this point. And I met this person. I said, oh, I love my iPod. And I remember he gave me his business card and he told me to meet him at a restaurant later that night. This was, again, I met, I met him at an engineering conference. So I go to the restaurant that evening and he has a table. They actually have like an entire 20 people table, 20 person table, I should say, in the back of the restaurant. And it's all these engineers from Apple. And it was so different. I had never seen anything like this, right? You know, it, was, it felt very elite, felt really uh, sort of special. And from that conversation that night, I got an invite to come out to California. And that was my first time flying out to California. And I, then my first trip to California, I come to, I go to Cupertino and I stayed overnight in Cupertino. I remember getting up the next day and I went to Apple. And you got to imagine, this is someone who doesn't know about formal design. Someone who's only appreciated a company like Apple from the outside is one of their, at that time, you know, few million consumers. And here I am walking into the circle, 
right? I'm walking in and I was blown away. I had never experienced anything like that. Just seeing the teams, the way people were moving around, talking to some of the engineers about parts. And I was actually interviewing. I didn't realize it, but I was interviewing for an internship. And I never forget when I left feeling exhausted, completely fatigued. And at the same time, I was so inspired. I just, I literally left and I thought it it was like electricity. It was, I was so fatigued, but I was just like, I felt like I was so behind. I remember having this feeling of like, just, you you know how you have that feeling. You want to get more knowledge. You just, you discover something and you're like, it was just literally an entire new world had opened up for me through that one trip to the Valley. And I wasn't even in school. I wasn't even in grad school yet. I had not even started studying design. And I said, that's what I want to do. I have to get into this world. It might be surprising to learn that Donald turned down that internship. But like his father, who wanted to become a pastor in the most academic way possible, Donald had the same epiphany. He decided that rather than moving in a new direction at warp speed, he wanted to take a more measured and academic approach himself. So he decided to go to grad school. His greatest interest at the time was digital fabrication, and Georgia Tech had one of the best programs in the country. So he headed down to Atlanta. He had become fascinated by the idea of being able to use code to control a machine and make anything he wanted. That, he decided, was the future. Georgia Tech is located in downtown Atlanta, which has a bustling tech scene. But Atlanta also has another major institution in the area the North American headquarters of Coca-Cola. At the time, Donald figured he would graduate with his master's degree, take his new design skills, and head back to the Midwest and the auto industry. But a professor introduced him to a vice president of one of the creative teams at Coca-Cola. He was impressed with Donald and invited him to join the company, one of the biggest brands in the world, as a contract designer. Almost overnight, everything changed. Coca-Cola changed everything. I was around professional designers, people who had had a lot of time working on different brands, Sprite, Coke Zero. And Coca-Cola was a company that really relied on brand in terms of how brand could be a verb, right? It, It translated to everything. It didn't matter if you were doing a vending machine or an ad. It didn't matter if you were doing something digital for a banner online, or if you were doing a can, every single aspect of their design was rooted in some precedent that they had established with their brand. And that was new. I had never experienced that. I'd never experienced getting 300 pages (laughs) of a brand style guide, of a system style guide and saying, okay, you need to understand this. And then you leverage this to create whatever it is we're asking you to create. And you got to be fast. And totally opposite from your childhood, which you weren't exposed to brands. No, not at all. Yeah, not at all. Not in a way where I would be able to tell you really amazing stories about, you know, a brand early on. So this was very new. He worked with Coca-Cola until he graduated in the spring of 2012. His time there was brief, but he learned a valuable lesson about creativity. The more outside the box, he thought, the more he seemed to impress the company's design leaders. He kept that realization in mind at his first job after graduation. 
In 2013, he joined the global design powerhouse IDEO, one of the early innovators of design thinking, or the iterative process that design teams use to solve problems and understand users. It was at IDEO where he learned one of the key principles to what would become his own formula for creative thinking. Everybody can be creative, whether they work in a creative field or not. There he learned about what he calls creative confidence. But while he was studying in Atlanta and later working for IDEO in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he never forgot his experience visiting Apple. He always knew he wanted to be in Silicon Valley, what he calls the epicenter of the creative world. And in 2013, the right opportunity presented itself. Moving to the Valley was another pivotal moment in his career. Armed with his newfound understanding of creativity and collaboration, he set out to learn all he could about the region's startup culture. He was inspired by the energy of the tech industry. This was an era that produced some of the biggest brands in tech. Startups like Uber and Airbnb were exploding and investors were taking notice. And fortunately for Donald, the biggest buzzwords on the block at the time was design. Over the next seven years, he would move between the startup world and working with major players like Facebook and Amazon. All the while, he was collecting the tools that would eventually form the basis of superhuman by design. The only question was the story he wanted to tell and how should he tell it? He'd been collecting ideas since his days at Coca-Cola, but he'd mostly been focusing on design. Finally, in 2019, while leading the physical experience design team at Capital One, it came to him. The superhuman part of it, that didn't come until after I was in Silicon Valley. And that's when those two connected, because I recognize that it's more than just the action. It's more than just taking a company and making it public. It's more than just going through a failure in terms of a career node or relationship moment. There's actually something much greater that has more to do with your identity and who you are. And I think it really clicked once I had lived through a few different situations, a few different seasons in Silicon Valley, where I said, it's not just the action, it's not just what you're doing, but it is also who you are. So you got to be more in order to do more. And if you're doing more, you better know that you can be more as well, because both are going to be required in order for you to live a very, very fulfilling life. And that's how Superhuman by Design was born. That's amazing. And it's great because you had like the brand component and the design component and they came together. This is your philosophy. Have there been any other variations of this philosophy that maybe you've seen along the way? Or you're purely the inventor of this concept? <laughs> no, honestly, I have it every uh, stumbling because I'm, I'm all of a sudden just, you know, surrounded by so many people, right, in the room who have informed what I've put on paper and what I'm hoping to bring to life even beyond paper. Creativity is something that is of value because there are so many people who have been talking about it for a long time, especially in Silicon Valley, and have proven, have made the business case, have made the intrinsic cultural case that it is of tremendous value. You know, just the nature of design. It was really about 
unleashing the creativity in the clients that we were serving. You had to unlock it because a lot of times a client was not going to show up and be open to innovation, open to change. You had to unleash that. So that in of itself is a topic that has already been well-researched, well-founded, well-funded. There's no argument, especially in Silicon Valley, that creativity in and of itself is of tremendous value. So I build on that by connecting it to the influence part, the impact part. So when you hear about, you know, a Simon Sinek talk about, you know, find your why, right? When you hear about the topic of superpowers as it comes up in like, you know, a strength finder conversation, right? These are two areas that often I feel are hovering around each other, but they don't land together, right? You're either talking about your influence, your impact, your strengths, your superpowers, your talents, your abilities, your sound bites, what you're known for. And then over here, we're talking about creativity as it pertains to innovation and change, thought leadership. So in my mind, Superhuman by Design intends to build the bridge between those two so that there's a very clear, linear thought, very concrete, pragmatic thought about how creativity and also your impact as an individual, because of who you are, are very much related and they're very much connected. And if you can build that connection, not only are you able to be this innovative change maker, this thought leader, but you're able to do so in a way that is ultimately quite positive for not just yourself, but is highly positive. It's a, it's a net gain for all of the individuals whom you are designing experiences for who you are getting up every day and making things come to life for. You build that bridge, and I think you have something different. I really do. It builds on it, but it, it's different. So how did you go from this moment where you said, oh, I have this theory, and it's, it's practice. It's, it's my best practice. You know, I practice this every day. So I'm super, to go from that and then applying it to work to actually writing a book, which is a whole other beast. What was that moment where you decided (laughs) I'm going to write this book and I'm going to share my knowledge and my wealth? Yeah. Why a book too, right? There's podcasts. There's so many other ways to start off telling a story, but why a book? I came to the realization that a book was going to encourage me to really frame things as clearly as possible so that another audience not myself, could appreciate it, could take something away. The same way as when we started the conversation and you said you were inspired and you took things away from the book. I knew that if I just talked about it, someone might get three seconds of it and say, wow, that's great. And then maybe a week later, you forgot. I knew if I put it into a book, it was going to have some legacy. It was going to have some perpetuation that was going to go beyond me. When he first committed himself to writing the book, it was late 2019, and he obviously had no idea what 2020 was about to unleash on the world. He started writing longhand on the yellow legal pad, jotting down ideas and translating some of his notes and sketches from throughout the years. At first, he was worried about the discipline and commitment it would take to turn his thoughts into a book-length manuscript. At the start of 2020, the world was thrown a curveball in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Between stay-at-home orders and remote work, suddenly everyone had more time on their hands than they knew what to do with, including Donald. So you seem to be very disciplined. Did you have to sacrifice or give up anything to accomplish writing the book? I didn't have to give up nearly as much as I thought I was going to have to give up if I was writing it in any other normal context. Meaning the book became cathartic. Between the pandemic, between watching George Floyd die, between seeing so many individuals last year go through these seismic changes in their own personal lives, whether they were, you know, a bus driver or working from home at some tech job, right? It didn't matter what level of life. I saw a lot of people really start to struggle with just their own value, right? Because so much of our identity was was challenged, right? Like if your identity's wrapped up in what you do every day, and then just like that, the world changes, and what you do every day changes, then people I saw struggle with their value. For me, I had already been preparing without knowing it for 2020 because I had lived through so many of those situations in the Bay. And so I thought to myself, I need to write. I need to write. I've been privileged enough to live through ups and downs, left and rights, roller coasters. And instead of sitting here and just experiencing what everyone is collectively saying, I am going to be that person that's going to go in the room and I'm going to spend a couple hours writing, editing, rewriting. And how long did it take you from the first yellow memo pad to the final manuscript? It was a full year. Uh, I Well, a year and a half. I started writing the, the yellow manuscript and doing all the notes kind of middle of 2019, paused for a little bit towards the end of the year started translating everything into sort of the word document and then I got I got back into it again in let's say March of last year I would say March is the choice of the yellow cover have anything to do with the yellow manuscript <laughs> <laughs> yellow memo pad it does a little bit with the yellow pad also with the highlighter I find that you know it's a very obviously digital world and we we spend a lot of time reading blogs and reading LinkedIn, Instagram, even Instagram, as visual as it is, we, we still spend a ton of time taking in words, but we take them in very differently because they're digital. In my mind, we actually sort of just skip over words. I mean, we're, we're just trying to get the gist of something. I think it takes a lot more to open a physical book and to get a highlighter and to mark it up. And perhaps this is actually a call to like our conversation at the beginning of the chat, Donna, about how I grew up. Like, you know, I'm probably that last generation that grew up without the internet, right? I didn't have the internet until I was like almost out of high school, right? Before we're like logging on the AOL, Netscape and such. So you wanted to research, you wanted to take something away, you had a highlighter and a book. <laughs> and and I don't want to sound old school, but in a way it was taking something that was very physical, very tactile in nature. And if you highlighted it, it meant that it meant something. It meant that it was important to you. It meant that you were going to take away something. If nothing else from that page, whatever you highlighted, 
was going to be of consequence. And so that's what I wanted in terms of the look and feel of the book. While you were writing the book, did you call your family and bounce ideas off of them or call mom and she got her highlighter? Were you hanging out at coffee shops and sharing superhuman by design, you know, or who were you feeding, bouncing off ideas from? My mom, for sure, was instrumental in reading through that first draft. I mean, there were some covers I had designed that never made it to the light, beautiful covers and some beautiful stories that didn't show up in that book. I gave it to my mom because I knew at some point I was going to write about my grandfather. And that was going to be a deeply personal story. And I wanted my mom to hear that story. I wanted her to read it, I should say, firsthand. And I wanted her to know that this was a very special project to me, especially because my mom, my mom spent a lot of time writing when we grew up. You know, she was a teacher. She was in academics. And so she read the first few drafts. One of my sisters has an English degree. The other one has a creative writing degree. So they both read it. So in terms of just additional feedback from my family, that was great. But the concept, that this is what was different, the concept of superhuman by design, I ran that by people who I thought were superhuman, people who were living in such a way that they were doing some incredible things. And I talked to them about the concept. And I said, do you think this concept has legs? Because it's coming off as a philosophy, but really... I'm giving people something that is a bit inspiration slash, you know, takeaway. And that was really important, spending time talking with with people who are in my world, who I look at and say, wow, this person is really superhuman and getting their feedback. It, it's actually what led to the um, Uni, Uni Chase writing that incredible forward, having conversations with people like that about the concept early on made a huge difference. So... Donald, the book came out at the end of 2020, after almost a year of the pandemic, a presidential election. You mentioned George Floyd and the movement of social justice. After everything the world has seen and gone through over the last year, what do you hope people learn from this book? It's the reason why I'm screaming to the world, like this book is worth your time, because the last thing I want people to say right now in this era, especially of the pandemic, is that somehow I've lost my vigor. I've lost my creative drive. I've lost my passion. And I'm just doing whatever I can to survive. No, you have every superpower you need inside. And there's more that you can get your hands on. And by way of activating those superpowers, and by way of holding on to an attitude of expectancy, you are going to see some incredible results come from what you're doing. That is what I think lifted me from even the darkest days in Silicon Valley, when companies closed or when you know a deal would go really bad and I was wondering how I was going to pay my rent in the most expensive city in America. <laughs> you have to hold on to this attitude of expectancy that as you engage your creative core and as you dial down these things that inhibit our creative core, and as you strengthen those three C's of creativity, right, Con- consciousness, connection, and community, as you strengthen those, there is going to be some incredible results in your life in terms of career, in terms of your finances, in terms of your personal relationships. And if you hold on to that creativity, that in and of itself, I feel like is a superpower. 
it may not be one we talk about a lot, but the people who hold on to that creativity, in my mind, it's like a kid that can hold on to imagination just a little bit longer. You are able to envision some pretty incredible worlds, right? These are the writers, the the producers that we love to sit down and watch. And we think, how did they come up with that? You know, they never gave up on their creative core, never gave up on their creative selves. That's how we, that's how we power through. That's what I would give to people right now. So what's next? Will there be a Superhuman 2? Or is it going to be a movie, a documentary series? So because it's you, and you and I go back a little bit, and I love, 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 you know, introducing really special things with, with you know, people who give me a platform to, to share and open up in this way. And so I am actually, Donna, working on a second book. And I haven't announced the title publicly, but I'll do it here. That's okay with you, because I'd love everyone to know. So little drum roll, because this is big. You can't have superheroes without supervillains. And so I thought, I can't write superhuman by design without writing supervillain by design. And so I've started to write about all of the things that work against the superhuman life. Everything from the imposter syndrome to the effects of what's happening with the pandemic to talking about, hopefully more in depth, my experiences as a, as a Black man within the context of design, within the context of Silicon Valley. I want to speak to the imposter syndrome. I want to speak towards diversity, inclusion, and prejudice. I want to speak to the systematic enemies that sometimes work against us. Because at the end of the day, I think there's a thin line between bending your reality such that you are either superhuman and you are lifting up the very best of those community values and what you're doing and how you are. And then there's something that's not that, right? Very thin lines. And I think that's really interesting to talk about. So I'm working on the next book. Supervillain by design. And I'm hoping to do a podcast and perhaps an illustrated version of Superhuman by design. So we'll see when it all rolls out, but I'm going to continue to promote this this message because I think the message is really, really cohesive. It's a really holistic message that I think I'm giving to, to everyone who decides to pick up the book. I invite everyone to open up their minds and look at this book as not a self-help book. Look at this book as really challenging. And I, I say this humbly, but I say this to, to all my design colleagues, really challenge yourself when you talk about the things you're talking about. Look at yourself and say, am I really living out an empathetic life, especially with my clients, right? Or especially with the individuals I'm designing for. We cannot continue as designers or as creative professionals to get up day in and day out and have this nature about us that's almost above. We are, in my opinion, in service of those who are using our products, who are experiencing the things that we create. And I dare all of us to really be more and to do more for the individuals who we are creating these experiences for. You shouldn't run away from a book like this. You should figure out a way to make this book your go-to book, right? This is your go-to message 
before you start having these conversations on diversity, right? You cannot have a conversation on creativity and not have a conversation on diversity. If you're having those in two separate rooms, you already are messed up and you missed 2020 and I can rewind it back for you, but you gotta dial in, you gotta dial in. So that's what I would submit that to, to all my colleagues. That was Donald Burlock Jr., author of Superhuman by Design. Donald says that the most unexpected outcome of the book has been the feedback he's gotten from people outside of the design community. His expectation was that his peers might enjoy it, pass it around, and give it a good word of mouth. But since the book's release in December 2020, he said he's been blown away by the response he's received from people in other walks of life. People who tell him that they've been able to relate it to their own world. He's heard from people in education, fashion, even bodybuilding. Donald says this diversity has been especially gratifying and inspiring as he begins work on his next book. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.